Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Liz O'Day. Liz is the founder and CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Olaris Therapeutics. This is a scrappy little startup that's studying metabolites that could provide clues for predicting which patients are most likely to respond to certain cancer drugs. Figuring out which patients are likely to respond is one of those perennial challenges of the cancer treatment enterprise. Given that most patients still aren't helped by the best drugs we have to offer, and all of these drugs are expensive and come with side effect baggage, there's a need to use our increasing knowledge of biology to cut down on the waste. It's about getting the right drug to the right patient, or at least stop giving the wrong drugs over and over. There are companies looking through the lens of genomic mutations. There are companies looking to protein biomarkers. Olaris is seeking to make its niche with analysis of metabolite signatures. In the early going, it has focused on the kind of metabolites that can indicate likely response to the class of CDK4-6 inhibitor drugs for HER2-negative breast cancer. Liz is both a scientist and an entrepreneur, unafraid to buck conventional wisdom. She's undeterred by the skepticism and eye-rolling that sometimes comes up in meetings when you utter the words biomarkers or metabolites or diagnostics. I met Liz by chance at the Biden Cancer Summit in Washington, D.C. last September. I thought at the time, she has an interesting story and is working on an interesting problem. Then, at the ASCO conference most recently, she and her team presented some interesting data. I thought, maybe I should have her on the long run. I think you'll enjoy listening to Liz describe the technology, her strategy, and how she got on this track. Now, before we start the episode, a couple quick things. Do you enjoy this podcast? Your organization can support it through a sponsorship. There aren't many places where you see an audience of 3,000 biotech leaders gathering every other week for an immersive, in-depth conversation. Are you interested in raising your profile with this high-powered group of listeners? Email me at luke at timmermanreport.com. The other thing you can do to invest in quality biotech journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual. That gets you two to three articles a week. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a sharing license. And when you do that, you'll be able to read my writing, plus in-depth reports from savvy contributing writers like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, Kyle Sarakawa, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Liz O'Day on the long run. Welcome, Liz O'Day. Thanks for joining me on the Long Run Podcast. Thanks for having me, Luke. So for our listeners, Liz, I think I'll share just kind of the genesis of having you on the show. Uh, if you can remember, maybe you do or don't. Uh, we first met when uh, we're sitting next to each other on bar stools after a long day yeah. at the Biden Cancer Summit in Washington. <laughs> and I'm, as, as we're waiting for our dinner to come, um, you made an interesting impression on me uh, with your story about Olaris Therapeutics and precision medicine. Um, you're, you struck me immediately as a smart person. Um, you also were a Timmerman Report subscriber, and um, I knew that to be true because I checked the subscriber database. So, like, your, your, your credibility, you passed the first pass credibility test, and you'd be amazed how many people flunk that, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they, they say they're a subscriber, but, you know, they're not. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. smart, credible, and also, like, working in this interesting space with precision medicine, uh, with patient stratification, helping predict which patients are most likely to respond to certain big-name pharmaceuticals. This is an important problem that's unsolved. 
Uh, and and you were and you had this kind of hustle aspect to you. You know, you're not backed by Third Rock or Arch or one of the big firms. You're kind of a classic entrepreneur, like getting out there and, and hustling to raise your money and put your team together. And uh, and I like that. <laughs> All of this sound uh, you know, along the right lines. Am I getting? Am I sizing you up correctly? Oh, I, I, th- I think that's fairly accurate. We actually met at one of the, or I spotted you at one of the sessions at the Biden uh, Cancer Summit first, and I am a Timmerman Report subscriber, and I used to tell my students to read it as well, and I, I remember spotting you in the audience and being like, oh, Luke Timmerman's here, <laughs> you know, um, and so I was just excited to get the chance. Well, evangelizing for TR, you get extra bonus points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> I want to talk um a lot about Olaris and the scientific challenge that you're trying to solve. But um, first off, uh, who are you? <laughs> Where does your story begin, Liz O'Day? Oh, geez. Um, I don't know how far we want to go back here. Um, well, where, where are you born and raised? Yeah. Well, actually, I was going to say, I was just listening to the, the Bob Langer podcast that you did previously, and I know you kind of traced his, his beginnings, and so maybe I'll follow sort of suit there. I'm, I'm a Boston girl, so um, I grew up in Braintree, right, out, right outside of, of Boston, um, you know, public schools and all that sort of stuff. I was been in the area sort of, it feels like, forever. Um, I uh, did my undergrad at Boston College. I was fortunate to receive a Winston Churchill Fellowship, so I did a year in England where I got a master's at the University of Cambridge. Okay, Liz, let's... let's- Let's back up for a second. I know you've won a bunch okay. of awards. You had kind of a precocious undergraduate uh, career that led you to Harvard eventually. Uh, but um, let's let's back up. You, um, your Braintree girl. Um, yeah. What uh, who, uh, what did your mom and dad do for a living? Um, my mom worked um, sort of as like a coordinator of religious education, and my father was was a lawyer. Um, but there are science in my genes. My um, my grandfather on my dad's side was a doctor, and my grandmother on my dad's side as well. Um, she was actually a chemistry major and the valedictorian of her college. Um, you know, back in the I don't know twenties or thirties, something like that. So um, I always kind of like look to her, you know, of where my uh, some of my scientific cred might might have come from. Were they uh, early influences, kind of encouraging young Liz to? Uh get excited about science? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, my, my grandmother in particular would always sort of ask me about, you know, what I was studying these days. And as I got older and got really into science, um, you know, she would sort of sit with me or share some of her books that she had kept from college on, you know, the state of the field then. And I could compare it to where things were now. And it was always a really, really rich conversations. Um, so yeah, they, they were, they were quite, you know, encouraging. Uh huh. Now, how about school? What kind of school did you go to? Uh, public school, all the way through and through. So I went to um, uh, Braintree High School, which um, was a great sort of, I think, high school and great education. I, it has, you know, a really rich AP program. So um, I guess maybe some of this needs to be put further into context. So I like loved science and was quite good at it through. Uh, my educational training and kind of just like immersed myself in it. So when I went to high school, I was very fortunate to kind of skip many of the basic classes and took AP chemistry and AP physics and um, kind of got the chance to just like, I don't know, push, push my brain as much as possible. And I guess that love or that interest in science sort of dated back to experience, um, which I know I've shared with you before in my childhood, my, my, my older brother had cancer when we were kids, um, he's completely fine now. So I just, you know, want to set that that straight away, very clear. Um, he's fine, but you know, when we were young, I was in kindergarten and first grade, and he was in, you know, first through third grade. Um, he like had a very rare form of childhood cancer called neuroblastoma. We lived in Children's Hospital um, for like two years. You know, my family was constantly sort of rotating in and out of there. It was the, the third floor Southwest for those that that know what that what happens on that floor and uh that experience you know is just a little kid like after like living through that and watching rob successfully come out of there from that day i started saying i was going to cure cancer so um so science was always sort of what i focused on you know in my elementary my middle school and my high school and then my college and further on uh sort of training it was 
this like intense focus and desire to figure everything out about how cancer works with the goal that if Whoa. maybe you knew that you could solve it. How how old were you when this happened to your brother? So I was in kindergarten when he was first diagnosed. So I think you're like six, maybe. Is that probably wow. how old you are? Yeah. Um, but that's a very searing kind of memory <laughs> that stays with um stays with people for a long time. Now, uh, Braintree, public schools. I mean, this is not the the wealthiest community in Massachusetts, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, there's, there's you know, good, good education there. I'd say it's like a working middle class sort of town. Um, and, you know, both my parents worked. So that left a lot of time for me and my brothers to entertain or get in trouble or which, whichever way you want to think about it. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, did you um, have a, a particular teacher that stood out and, and sought to challenge you? Because it sounds like, you know, you're you're kind of getting straight A's and, you know, seeking out extra challenges with AP. I mean, was there someone that said, um, here, I want to give you some extra work and push yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, there have been a series of different teachers that have been just super helpful when I think back of like all the people that helped get me um, on this path. You know, one in particular that jumps to mind was my, I think she was my, gosh, she high school, maybe she was, yeah, a high school uh, chemistry teacher who like let me not take basic chemistry, but just took AP chemistry. And so I was jumped in with kids, you know, a couple years older than me. Um, and she really, encouraged me and often like highlighted my work, you know, as, as stuff that was good and, you know, and, and challenged my other peers, you know, to, um, you know, to kind of look towards what I was doing. And, and we were, I was very good friends with a lot of kids in the class. So we had a, like a lot of fun together. And, but she also kind of acknowledged that I was good at this and made me feel good about sort of excelling in chemistry, which, um, you know, not, you know, isn't sort of the, the huge for many young kids or young females in particular. Yeah, did did you encounter much, uh, you know, skepticism or bias or this, you know, classic stuff that we hear women have to deal with entering STEM fields, or or not so much? Yeah, for you? I think. Um, I mean, a couple of things. So I have two brothers who are fabulous, and I'm middle child, right? So classic middle child syndrome here. And I grew up in this neighborhood where. Um, the neighborhood was just very dense with boys as well. So there, there were all these boys that were my older brother's age and all these boys that were my younger brother's age. And so if I wanted to have, you know, people to play with, it was like me and the boys. So um, I think I learned a little bit of how to like kind of deal with, with dudes in a different sort of way. And so um, it never really bothered me or I wasn't fully aware of it because I was just so used to interacting and, you know, boys giving me, a hard time me giving boys a hard time, you know, all, all in, in the pursuit of fun. Um, but it wasn't until I went to college, actually, um, and I was at BC, and I was there was like an honors science or honors chemistry program that I was a part of. And, um, you know, I was one of only a handful of, of females that were in it. And as you kind of alluded to, I was fortunate to, you know, to win a lot of awards as an undergrad researcher. And every time I got an award, they made a big deal that I was first female or the only female or that I was a girl in science. Um, and so it was almost like when they gave me those distinctions and they meant it as a nice thing, that it actually made me kind of look back and be like, oh, why are, am I weird or are there, why aren't there other sort of girls or other females um, pursuing this sort of stuff? And um, it actually sort of frustrated me enough that I, I started a program um, called Women in Science and Technology. Um, which is still running today. It's now, I think it's in its 14th year at Boston College, where every year we bring in um, high school-aged female girls to go work in Boston College labs so that they can see what being a scientist sort of really is, you know, because um, for me, science is fun. It's rewarding. It's challenging. It's anything everyone could ever want for, like in a job or in a life. And I think there's just like a lot of misconceptions out there. And so that was part of this goal was to get other, you know, create an awareness program so other females could see how fun being a scientist was. So and you you um, started this program at BC when you were still an undergrad. I did, yeah. I think in my senior year. So this is sounds kind of like a a startup in a way. <laughs> I you know I jokingly say with some of the professors um, that helped 
me get it going. But yeah, it was sort of my first soiree into entrepreneurship without sort of realizing it um, because, you know, I remember I got, you know, whatever, some award. And they, again, there was this big hoopla that I was the only female to do it. And it really sort of frustrated me. And I went and just knocked on this amazing professor's door, Mary Roberts. She's recently retired, but she was a physical chemist at, at Boston College. And I said, hey, Professor Roberts, like, would you be okay if I started a program that taught girls about science? She like, yeah, sure, Liz. You know, I was at that point, like, working in the chemistry lab and, like, you know, a staple feature there. So she kind of was like, sure, whatever. And then a couple months later, I showed back up with, like, 30 high school girls that I had recruited. And we had to, like, get funding, you know, to pay for lunches and put things together. And uh, I'm like, it was very loosely organized as an understatement that first year. But, um, you know, thankfully, was able to recruit people to work with me to teach the students to kind of continue the program and now it's like yeah 13 years strong like I think some like hundreds of people have participated in the program which is kind of bananas to think about yeah but you know having a vision um executing on a plan um you know communicating it clearly to people uh generating excitement these are these are common traits of leadership. I mean, this is what the entrepreneurs have to do uh, if you're going to start a company or start a nonprofit. Or um, so, so you're, um, and you get some of the satisfaction of seeing this thing. You know, <laughs> girls actually show up <laughs> at the lab yeah, and, and like and, it, yeah, <laughs> and have fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's really cool. So uh, you, you you do well as an undergraduate. Chemistry is your major, uh, right? Biochemistry. Biochemistry. Okay. So how did you end up going to Harvard for graduate school? Um, well, I did uh, this Churchill Fellow. Uh, it was a Churchill, I think it's called Fellow, Churchill Fellow, um, which uh, allows people to get a master's. There's like 11 American scientists that are selected each year um, to spend um, a year or two in England getting their master's there. And so I got my master's of philosophy and chemistry at the University of Cambridge and then um, applied for for my PhD program um, at Harvard. I was an NSF fellow there and spent the good, better part of five years um, popping between two amazing labs at Harvard. Um, I was fortunate to be a joint student in the laboratory of Judy Lieberman, uh, who is this amazing cancer biologist, microRNA immunologist, woman, scientist, and Gerhard Wagner, um, who was a biophysicist, NMR spectroscopist, um, like amazing human being. And, you know, I had this idea that, you know, I had been sort of rigorously trained in biophysics and chemistry. Um, so it's sort of like, like the molecular principles of how the world works. But I wanted to take all those sort of fundamental understandings from my Ph.D. and apply them to a problem, to cancer. You know, how are we going to sort of solve this? And so um, I was maybe very fortunate that I approached both Judy and Gerhard, who had previously not really met with this idea for a joint Ph.D. and uh Thankfully, or I think for better or worse, you know, they, they said yes. And so I spent uh, time running and back and forth between their two labs, like learning biophysics and different techniques there, and then trying to take those lessons and learn and apply them to cancer and biology and figure out how we could, you know, learn, translate best practices from one area sort of to the other. It's really interesting. This is uh, a, a cross-disciplinary kind of experience uh, that, you know, it's often where a lot of innovation happens, but also makes people pretty uncomfortable because, uh, you know, you have to work really hard to go deep down a rabbit hole in one area to become an expert. And it's doubly hard to do that in two areas. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I guess that, di that didn't intimidate you. I must be like part masochist. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like, I see a challenge and just, I think I'm, uh, that's maybe the entrepreneurial spirit in me as well. It's like, mm, let me give it a go here and, and see if we can make it happen. And, um, you know, there were definitely moments that were incredibly challenging, you know, because as you said, you know, your PhD, the real goal is to become the world's expert in a particular area. And I was definitely spread very thin, you know, with, responsibilities from two labs and commitments from two labs, learning techniques from two labs. Um, so at the time it was very hard, but when I look back at it right now, I'm so grateful for that experience because I basically got, you know, a little, like, um, a little examination of all these sort of different ways that you can do science and got exposed to so much um, during my PhD that I don't think I would have if I was just in a single lab. Now, while you're doing all this stuff between the two labs, at, toward the end, you also did a, a program at Harvard Business School. Is that right? Um, yeah, well, I, so 
I um, sat in on a bunch of classes and I did like, a, like an independent research project. So I um, started a, a apparel company, a fashion company towards the end of my graduate school called Lizard Fashion. Uh, we make science fashionable. So um, basically, I was sitting one day on the confocal microscope. I think it was a Saturday, and I had been, like, on this microscope for the better part of, like, five hours. And I was taking these beautiful images that were sort of super striking. And I remember thinking, like, ooh, this would be, like, a cute T-shirt or would make a fun sort of skirt or something like that. And I was like, hey, uh, I should do that. You know, I should put these images on, you know, apparel and Maybe we could even use fashion as a medium to promote science. And so I reached out to people I had met or, you know, through the Harvard community. I had got to know Vicki Sato, and, you know, she's this wonderful entrepreneur and mentor and great person. And I told her I had this, like, idea pop into my head, and she's like, you should do it. And I was like, okay. And so I started Lizard Fashion out of my Mission Hill apartment, <laughs> um, and I started, I set up a website printed some t-shirts that had some dork science dorky science stuff on it and um started selling them and uh we started selling a lot of them where they got picked up in gift shops in the museum of natural history here at harvard and gift shops and marine biology labs and different people were contacting me to do designs we did an ad for the mbta and all this sort of stuff was happening and i was like hmm I should probably learn some business because uh, I've never even taken like an English class. I've been like straight science and math my entire life. Um, so I thought like I should probably like learn a thing or two um, about how this whole world works, you know. And um, so I just wrote to a lot of HBS professors that said, hey, I'm a PhD student. Like, would you mind if I sit in in some of your classes? And um, thankfully, everybody was cool about it. They're like, yeah, come on in. Let me meet you. And so I got to kind of just like be a fly on the wall and learn about this whole other world of business that before I had no idea even existed. That is such a funny little story because I can imagine a lot of men in the audience are probably thinking now, I mean, you're doing what? Um, you're using fashion to promote science? I mean, that idea wouldn't occur to a lot of guys. And uh, <laughs> when they hear it, it, you know, they might not immediately get it. <laughs> um, well, I would say we're cool. Like we would have like the evolutionary tree, you know, and be like only the fit survive or like one of our big sellers was a t-shirt um, that was available in from baby onesie up to an adult um, t-shirt that on the front of it said, you know, how do vaccines cause autism? And then on either the baby's thumb or when you flipped over the shirt uh, on the back, would say, you know, they don't. And then there would be like a QRT code that uh, would like link you to a page about like all, all the things that vaccines are doing to like save lives around the world. So uh, they were they were like supposed to be smart, clever, you know. Okay, but now this is probably not going to become, you know, your life's work. And I'm sure you figured that at the time, you know, you're way deep in the pool of biochemistry and biophysics, um, picking up some awards. Um, how did you, uh, I mean, were you thinking about um, kind of a classic academic tenure track kind of research career or, or were you gravitating early on to industry like biotech, pharmaceuticals? No, I, I thought the way that you were a scientist was working in an academic lab. Um, you know, again, like I have wanted to cure cancer since that experience with my brother. And that's I was, I think, a combination of both like naive and arrogant enough to think that that's like what I was doing, whether it was my undergrad, my master's or my Ph.D. Like I was working to sort of cure cancer. And I thought that this is how you do it. You spend, you know, your life in the lab, you think in a ring, you find something and then voila, it gets to sort of patience. Um, and it was literally only when I was turning in my thesis and I kind of had like the blinders off and a little aha moment where I realized kind of like what I thought I was doing of actually bringing the product to patients was a couple steps removed in, in academia. And I kind of was like, oh, geez, I, I'm not sure this is exactly sort of what I want to be doing. I think, um, you know, I, I think academia is great. There were a lot of amazing ideas and products and innovations and technology sort of comes from. But I think if you think back of even those two small vignettes, I told you, you know, with the Women in Science Technology Program or Lizard Fashion, I like to like make things and, and build things and have products and move things forward. And I realized that like that's that's what I wanted to do with my science was to, to bring it to people and make it more uh, more tangible. Yeah, yeah. You can get one of those academic jobs and come up with new theories and uh, interesting experiments. Um, 
publish papers, get the next grant, publish papers, get the next grant. But uh, that that often doesn't take you nearly far enough down the road. Uh, Somebody has to pick up that ball and run with it and turn it into a product. And that's what industry does. And you understood that early on. Well, I didn't until the very end. Like, I really, like, had no idea. And I think, like, part of what I try to do now is go back to speak to different PhD programs and, and just interact with people to let them know about kind of this great world of biotech and pharma and how much great science and great products sort of get done here. And that, you know, there should be a lot more collaboration, I think, between industry and academia because this is how, like, we can move things from the lab to real people and helping them in their everyday lives. Okay, so you get your PhD uh, defense all done right around 2013, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Okay, so um, now what? Can you describe your your thought process on what your next move was going to be? I mean, truthfully, and we're getting super honest here, um, I mean, I was like almost like a lost little puppy, like because I was supposed to you know, go down that academic sort of track. I was supposed to do a postdoc and, you know, maybe become a professor, but I just had this realization moment that uh, that's not what I wanted to do. That's not the life that I led. So I was actually quite lost um, and sort of unsure of kind of what to do next. So um, Bill Solomon, if you don't know him, you should ask him to do one of these podcasts. He's a great person, but um, he's, you know, was a professor. I think he just retired from HBS. One of the deans of entrepreneurship has been involved in starting like lots of companies. He and I had got to know each other through my work at Blizzard Fashion. And uh, when I was having sort of this life crisis, you know, he was like, okay, calm down, kid. You know, you're a smart person. Relax. Like, take a deep breath. Tell me if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? And I said, I know it sounds maybe naive, but I would start a company that actually cures cancer. And then I gave sort of the, the original spiel of what Alaris does, that we have developed the Centimar-based metabolomics platform that can figure out which drugs can work for which people and allow you to stay one step ahead of cancer and blah, 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 blah. like sort of rambled off what was probably the, the first uh, Alaris elevator pitch. And uh, Bill told me, like, great, you know, do that. And I said, you know, you're, you're batshit crazy. That's, that's, like, impossible. Who am I? You know, I don't know anything about biotech. I don't even know anybody that works in, in this area. And um, he said, okay, fine, come to Harvard Business School. We'll teach you how to be a businesswoman, and then you can start this company. And so that sort of, like, calmed me down because I can, I can do school, like, put me in a classroom. Like, that's, like, something I can, I can do well at. So I was like, okay, I can do that. And um, that was sort of the plan. I was finished my PhD in 2013, and then there would have been a year before I was um, going to go to HBS. And... Uh, in that sort of year time, Bill was very amazing to introduce me to people um, that he knew that had started biotech companies so that I could kind of like pick their brains about how they did it and lessons learned. And through many of those conversations, uh, it started to kind of, I guess, build confidence and people kept, you know, asking me like, what are you waiting for? Like, you know what you want to do, just, just go for it. So about six months after I finished my PhD and I was sort of in this, I don't know, no man's land. I said, okay. I called Bill and I said, you know, don't be mad at me. Uh, I don't think I'm going to go to HBS. I'm, I'm going to try to start Olaris. And uh, he said, not mad at all. And in fact, I'd like to be your first investor. And so uh, Bill Solomon is definitely one of the reasons that I, I'm talking to you today. So major wow. shout out to him. Well, you know, yeah. and you mentioned earlier that Vicky Sato, um, who was a previous guest on this show, uh, you know, tremendous uh, track record in biotech, great Rolodex. I mean, she was a supporter of yours, Bill Solomon yeah. at HBS. This is like how an ecosystem works. <laughs> um, people make helpful introductions. Pretty soon you end up yeah. meeting uh, Bob Carpenter, right? Who is one of the... Yeah. Um, a prominent entrepreneur in the Boston area worked with on the, on the board of Genzyme for many years, I believe during its growth. Um, yeah. He, how Bob did you, how like did you meet Bob? Through Bill. So Bill, what, Bob was one of those sort of lunches that he said, Hey, you know, Bob, you should meet Liz. She wants to start a company someday. You know, Liz, meet Bob. He's done everything that anyone could ever could in, in biotechnology and then some. Um, and so, I remember we went for sushi and um, I have a gluten allergy and Bob ordered all this sushi that had gluten on it. But I was like, oh, 
you know, I can't, I can't, I'm just going to take one for the team because this is Bob Carpenter, you know, <laughs> and so um, we chatted and, you know, I dealt with the, co- the consequences later, but um, Bob and I actually became very good friends at that moment. And again, I told him the, the very beginnings of, of what Polaris was and he just immediately, he's so sharp and so smart, like on both a science and business level that he could see sort of the possibility sort of here. And, um, you know, as, my confidence in starting the company sort of continued to grow and he kind of became first an unofficial mentor and then a co-founder of the company with me. Um, we've been, you know, together ever since. So it's now been over four and a half years and he's kind of like my, my, my right hand man. And I feel incredibly lucky that I can say that about Bob Carpenter, you know. Now, now starting a company, um, this is like going to be your, your full-time job. Um, did he or some others like round up some angel capital so that you could like, you know, pay the rent for a while uh to yeah yeah so bob um we have an amazing group of of angel investors um that have been with me um for a very long time so bob um carpenter john abley from boston scientific bill solomon uh john simon tim surgeoner michael higgins um all these sort of fabulous people um in biotech that like you know i mean I'm, I'm a young, first-time female entrepreneur, so, you know, they, they, they didn't give me a ton of money, but they gave me enough to get going, and then we've been able to build on that and kind of keep building. Like, you know, you said at the, the, the beginning, this has been a super scrappy, bootstrapped company, um, but, you know, that's how we set out to do it because this is all sort of science-driven, and we want to make sure we have something that is working, and if it continues to work, we can keep finding funding for it and kind of build that way. Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support in two ways. One, you can sponsor the long run and reach 3,000 biotech leaders in an immersive listening experience every other week. And the other way is simply to subscribe to Timmerman Report. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe. And are you interested in getting a group sharing license for your company so multiple people can read? email me at luke at timmermanreport.com. I'd like you to tell me a bit about like the founding idea, the big idea here, because when you, when we talked at the Biden Cancer Summit, you started talking about precision medicine and predicting responders versus non-responders. I mean, I've been covering this field for a long, long time. These are hard problems. Nobody's really solved. Yeah. It comes up against, <laughs> it clashes with traditional pharmaceutical business models because, you know, um, if I'm a big company that sells a cancer drug that I know only has a 20% response rate. I mean, I still want the doctors to prescribe it to everybody with the diagnosis. Uh, and you know, if, if they charge, if I charge $150,000 and 80% of those patients don't respond, it's like, I'm still depositing that 150,000 in the bank. <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah, people, no, have, people, pe- I mean, there's been, you know, this, uh, this movement toward precision medicine, it, it, the science is pointing us there, but it, it hasn't happened for a variety of reasons. And, you know, and I think back, you know, it's a complicated story. You know, I remember early yeah. on, I don't even know if you know this story, but like um, Roche came out with this Amplit chip uh, many years ago uh, just mm-hmm. to look at one thing like uh, cytochrome P450 2D6 uh, metabolism. Yeah. So like if you're a fast yeah. metabolizer or a slow metabolizer of 2D6, this is an enzyme that uh, like uh, that, that breaks down a lot of drugs in the liver. Yeah. And, you know, maybe... You know, that characteristic alone could predict your response or not. And this came out like 20 years ago and nobody bought it, (laughs) even though I think the data was, I think it was going to work or should. Um, What, what, okay, I'm rambling here, but what was, you've got, you've got so many great things and yeah. (laughs) You've Um, got a different idea here with metabolites looking across the metabolome. Uh, all those metabolites that are in our blood and our urine, and they're full of information. Now, there's a lot of noise in there. Uh, we don't often know what a lot of that information means. But what what are your what's your plan to extract 
that information and turn it into something useful for stratifying patients on likelihood of response to a certain drug? Yeah, so first I agree with mostly everything that you, you just said. I'm going to sort of try to sort of unpack it. So where this sort of came from and what we're doing and how it ties into sort of precision medicine. I mean, so the where, again, goes back to like watching my brother have cancer and being told to sort of like hope and pray, you know, that the chemo worked and like, good Lord, I did. But I just felt even as like a six-year-old that there had to be sort of a better way to do that. And there is. Um, there are there's technology out there, not just Stolaris's, maybe it's some, you know, CYP2D6 or other, the other CYP profiling, or genomics or epigenomics or proteomics. But there are biomarkers that swim around in you and those that swim around in me and the differential expression of those patterns is what makes you, you, me, me, why you're more susceptible to certain diseases, me, others. And if we both got the same disease and both were given the same drug, you might have a beautiful benefit and it might be, you know, bad news bears for me. Like, that biological information is there, um, and the great news is that we have the technology to sort of do it. The challenge has been is that the studies to identify sort of these biomarkers, you know, haven't been reproducible or powered right, or there was either a problem with the, the, the technology or the analytics at the time, you know, that, like, prevented some of these findings from, you know, holding the merit that everybody sort of hoped that they, they that they would have. I would say, though, now we're in this sort of sweet spot in the world where, like, the technology is there. We just have to kind of go out and do these studies. And this is where the part that you alluded to, like, that the business model part is sort of missing because you know this probably many more than most. In biotechnology, everybody loves drugs, right? That's where all the money goes to. That's where all the funding goes to. People understand how drug development works and how that even though there's like, you know, less than a 10% chance that a drug is going to make it to the market, they know that if it gets, if it gets to the market, the chance for like a billion dollars, you know, a blockbuster drug is, is, is there. So people are willing to sort of take that risk. On the other side of the table of diagnostics and biomarkers where, you know, there's a good chance here that the science will work. So it's not like that 10% chance of success on the other side. It's probably, you know, 50, 60, 70% higher on this side. But the ROI, the return on your investment, the way that reimbursement works, the way that IP works in this country makes the, 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 the opportunity for that investment to have as big of a win so much smaller so that people aren't sort of investing in this area. And it's, it's at a disservice to the, to the public because we keep coming out with these newer and greater drugs that work, you know, and 20% of patients, and then another one that works in different 20% of patients, but we're not investing in the technology to figure out, okay, with the drugs that we have and with new ones coming to market, like, why don't we just figure out who these actually work for so that, one, we can improve outcomes, we can, you know, improve the patient experiments, and we can sort of cut down on this ridiculous healthcare cost that we have, um, at least in the United States, but but elsewhere. And that's sort of what Olaris's technology is it's trying to sort of do. So, um, again, we're in the precision medicine space, which is not a new one, um, but Alaris's sort of competitive advantage or what makes us different is that, you know, unlike I'd say 90 or 95 percent of the companies in this space who are doing some sort of genomics approach, sequencing, arrays type stuff, Alaris is looking downstream of the genome at metabolites. And um, metabolites are only made like if an enzyme, either yours, an endogenous enzyme or a microbiome um, enzyme, like did it. Like it's a functional readout of what's actually happening inside of you and me. And so the measure of your metabolites is sort of like a snapshot of what is and what is not happening. And that's sort of what like Alaris is using as our input to, input to develop these precision medicine tools. So um, you talked about Part of this is what I, I think is interesting here is that when people have traditionally talked about precision medicine, they tend to talk about that underlying genetic code, the genome. You know, if you've got the mutation for the Philadelphia chromosome, say, well, gosh, we'll give you a Gleevec, and now that's going to work. <laughs> uh, but that's a rare case. Um, yeah, that is right. yeah. most diseases don't work like that. Um, you know, we have these big buckets like, uh, well, HER2 negative breast cancer, for instance. I know this is an area you're working on. There's a lot of yeah. heterogeneity. Um, there are environmental factors, of course, that contribute uh, to whether you end up with that downstream phenotype. You're saying 
that by looking downstream at the metabolites in these accessible bodily fluids, you can pick up on signatures that are highly predictive of whether or not you are going to respond to that hurt that CDK46 uh, breast cancer drug or, or something else. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, we're working on a CDK46 product. So maybe I'll just sort of give a quick case example. And so it'll kind of make sense of how it works or hopefully make sense. Um, but so for hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, metastatic breast cancer, the standard of care becoming these CDK46 inhibitors. And there are three of them on the market, Ibrantz made by Pfizer, Quisqually made by Novartis, and Varenzio made by Eli Lilly. And these drugs are, are, are pretty good. You know, so they inhibit CDK cyclin-dependent kinase 4 or cyclin-dependent kinase 6, binding from cyclin D1 and stopping sort of the cell cycle um, as a way to sort of halt cancer, cancer cell tumor progression. And the drugs are great, but about 20% of patients are intrinsically resistant. And for those patients that do not respond within, like, the six, six months of treatment, it's almost sort of guaranteeing them, like, like death within the next year or so. Like, because, like, basically what happens is that doctors will put them on these drugs. They'll kind of wait to see if tumors grow or shrink. But if, if they get put on this drug and their tumors continue to grow, the window of time when, pa- when physicians could have put a patient on a drug that actually worked for them and, like, curbed the spread of the cancer has almost been lost. So we did this study with MGH where we got 24 samples. Some of the women um, were, and so we got 24 breast cancer plasma samples from women before they went on a CDK4-6 inhibitor and after two months of being on the drug. And the doctor classified the women as responders who are women that took this drug and their tumors shrank within the first six months of treatment. And 87% of them are still alive today. And that's been two years since the start of that trial that is sharply contrasted with the women that the doctor described as the non-responders. They are the women who took the drug, and after six months, their tumors continued to grow. They would stop CDK4-6 treatment and sort of try to cycle in one, two, three, four alternate lines of therapy. But unfortunately, again, because that window of time was missed, about 90% of them died within the next year. And so this is like what Alaris' technology is trying to sort of pick up is say, okay, is there a signature that could let us predict either before treatment a priori, who are the patients most likely to benefit from a CDK6 inhibitor and who are the patients sort of least likely to benefit so that they don't waste time on an ineffective treatment. And, you know, we are not the only people that are searching for a CDK4-6 inhibitor. If you look at the literature, it's super hot. We actually just moments ago got our um, abstract accepted for ASCO to, to, to share our story um, because to date people have been looking on a genomic approach. They're looking at, um, RB status, luminal gene expression, cyclin D, cyclin E, CDK2, all these different genes as potential markers to explain why certain patients aren't responding to these drugs. And what I would say is that each one of those could be true. Like for, for one patient, it could be CDK2. For another patient, it could be RB. For another patient, it could be something completely different. But by looking downstream of the genome at the metabolites, we, we almost say, like, we don't necessarily care what the genetic mutation is or what, you know, whether it's a genetic or an environmental or some other factor that's preventing these drugs from working. What we're saying is that in the metabolism, we'll be able to tell when a drug is working and when a drug is not working and just use it as a first sort of chance. It's just like a fingerprint, you know, like first we just want to detect it and then we can go back and try to sort of decipher mechanism. But first, identifying resistant patients so you can offer the te- treatment. The technology that you're using is NMR spectroscopy, correct? See, yes, that's correct. Now, now, why, uh, why is that a good technology for for capturing useful information? Yeah, so NMR, um, so to measure metabolites, small molecules, there are two main platforms: NMR spectroscopy and mass spectrometry, and they are both fabulous platforms. I'd say most people have been focusing on mass spectrometry efforts of late because it's a lot more sensitive and a lot more um, throughput or higher throughput. The reason I have focused on NMR and why I like NMR is um, for the reproducibility factor. So um, NMR is a universal detector. You will run a sample. If I run a sample here and you run a, you know, a sample in China in 10 years from now, the, the, the spectrum of metabolites will be like roughly the same, meaning like Lactate, for example, is a small molecule, and it will come in roughly the exact same exact same uh, location 
on every NMR spectra, you know, so long as everything sort of runs similar, um, so that we're able to sort of quantify and follow how these metabolites are changing over time in patients. And it allows you to do sort of these longitudinal and highly reproducible studies. Um, It's also a universal detector. It lets you see anything, basically. So in our case, like oftentimes you have to pick the things that you want to look at. So like, oh, let's just go look at branched amino acids or let's go like look at lipids or let's go look at a particular set of molecules. And while that's actually been helpful for diagnosing like a lot of different diseases, um, our approach is like we don't necessarily know what the right biomarkers are just yet or what the right metabolites are. So we want to capture the broadest lens possible and NMR lets you do that. So our technology, which is based off of the work I did at my PhD, you know, allows us to sort of detect and quantify nearly the entire human metabolome um, input from microbiome byproducts as well as sort of xenobiotic breakdown products. And so we get all of this information, you know, it's kind of like a little sandbox, and then this is where the machine learning or AI bits come in where then we say, okay, you know, based off previous patients, here's all this metabolite information that people did well, here's all this metabolite information that people did poorly, you know, can we identify signatures and biomarkers that could separate the two and could empower future treatment choices? Now, so you start here with a retrospective analysis, like you just described. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to, the machine learning AI will help you form, form some new hypotheses, right? On yep. what these signatures might be. Which, and then what's the next step? Is it to do one of these kind of prospective randomized controlled trials, which is long, expensive, uh, difficult? Is that where you go with yeah. this? So, so there's a couple of intermediate steps. I think ultimately that's where, we, where you want to head. Um, but the first thing you would do is, you, you know, you do a couple of these. So we've done, you know, one retrospective study. Now we just do another one where we're blinded to the answer. So now we get all these patients sampled in. I don't know who the responders or non-responders are. Don't tell me. I'm going to I'm going to guess and you're going to tell me how well I did with that prediction. And that's sort of where we are right now for we've done this now for six different drugs and we're in the reproducing stage of getting samples from different sites with larger patient cohorts to show that the signatures that we've identified in our sort of training models hold suit when you apply this to larger patient populations to, you know, our study, first study was done with MGH. We want to make sure it's not just an MGH thing. We're, you know, going to be working with all different hospitals across the world to make sure that the signature is reproducible and has that clinical utility that, like, that we hope and dream. And I, and I think, you know, that's been sort of maybe in the biomarker space, people have been very quick to identify these biomarkers, but then they haven't sort of held true in larger studies. And so um, this is the kind of the path that you have to walk to so that, that you have products that actually you know, do the things that you all set out to, to do with them. Now, there are plenty of pharma companies that do work with companion diagnostics. Or they try to yeah. with varying degrees of success. I mean, the PD-1 story is a, is a good example. People have been really busting their heads trying to figure out how to stratify likely responders with PDL one expression. Um, it's been problematic for a whole set of reasons, like how and when you run the assay, what's the cutoff for a high yeah. expressor or a low expressor, and that people are looking at this, you know, downstream kind of information. Uh, and and so the pharma companies, in some cases, you could say, yeah, that would narrow their addressable market for their drug, but it would increase the response rate reduce overall waste in prescribing and the healthcare system. So they're not like completely misaligned with this vision that you're outlining. Um, are, are they are they on board with what you're trying to do? I, I don't see uh, like pharma partners lining up with Olaris yeah. just, just yet. Yeah, so, so we always get this question, like, does, are you friend, friend or foe to pharma? And I, I think the relationship is actually is positive. You know, first of all, pharma wants their drugs, you know, to work. And so information to help them use their drugs to more effectively treat people, I think they would, I, I believe that they would always sort of um, want to, to have. Um, what they don't want is biomarkers that aren't that great, that like, you know, don't help them figure out who and sh- who should and should not sort of get, get these drugs. Um, so we're companion diagnostics have already demonstrated success in helping pharma is sort of de-risking and accelerating sort of their their clinical trials. It's already shown that if you, it, and, you know, I said 
that to develop a drug, you have about a 10% success rate. If you add a companion diagnostic or a biomarker, that already jumps up to about 25%. Um, and it, even as we get better at doing biomarker and companion diagnostic discovery, I think that's even going to sort of go um, even higher as, as we move forward. But, you know, this idea about, like, their market size and their pricing, I, I think it's missing a lot of other nuances that need to sort of be considered. So, uh, first of all, if you can show that your drug works, you can get these sort of value-based contracts and you can demand sort of premium pricing. So, um, although you and I probably believe that drug prices are, are already pretty high, like, if you can show certain efficacy, you can even command, you know, um, more premium pricing. Further, right now, if I was a metastatic breast cancer patient, I would get the drug that my insurance company has negotiated the best sort of rebate for, right? So, um, you know, there, as I said, there are three drugs on the market. Let's pretend that my insurance company places Ibrant, you know, high on the formulary and not Quisqually or Varenzio, the other two drugs. That means that, like, Novartis and Eli Lilly are essentially being kept out of um, certain access to certain patients just due to these sort of rebates and these discounting game. Companion diagnostics could blow this whole thing up where now you don't get the drug that your insurance company has negotiated the biggest sort of discount for. You get the drug that's actually most likely to work for you. Um, and I think this is an area where pharma and payers and diagnostic companies can all find common ground because this sort of rebate game, I think, frustrates like a lot of people. Um, and, and so, you know, I think here's a way that we might be able to kind of like work together. Well, as someone who covers a lot of clinical trial data, um, I I get excited when I see response rates up above 50, 60, sometimes 80 <laughs> um, percent that, um, you know, that like just it makes so much sense. If you can do that, uh, even if it narrows your addressable patient population, you've got to do that. And, uh, you know, the information is often lacking, like we just don't know. How to how to stratify like that, um, and, and it sounds like the onus is on you. Uh, you you've got to deliver that data, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and and once you do, um, well, maybe then you've got a few more willing pharma partners to help you further develop that into a product. Um, insurers might be motivated. Uh, would they be? Uh, what what role do they play here for you as you think long term about your business? Yeah, no, I, I, we think of them as one of, you know, our most valuable stakeholders here. I mean, treating, again, we'll just stay in the breast, uh, breast cancer space, treating breast cancer, breast cancer cost a pretty penny. Each one of those drugs, about $150,000 a year, you know, so if 20% of the people on it aren't, aren't, aren't going to benefit from it, like that's a whole bunch, whole bunch of millions of dollars sort of wasted. And then there's additional costs that are incurred to both the healthcare system as well as the individual patient by not being put on, you know, the most optimal drugs. So actually right now we're chatting with basically every payer out there to see if we can do some of these health economic studies to showcase or to highlight, you know, the additional costs that come with non-optimal sort of treatments and where, you know, if you had a biomarker, you know, with this amount of efficacy, not only would it hopefully improve outcomes, but what would be the cost savings sort of associated sort of with that. Um, so payers play a huge huge role in, in this game. Now, you just recently raised a round of funding, right? Yes. Um, can you say how much? Yeah, just yet. Okay. But suffice to say, this isn't one of these, you know, $100 million Series A rounds that, you know, guys like me tend to write about. <laughs> this is, um, <laughs> uh, you're, you're still like a, a kind of a scrappy startup. And I mean that in a, yep. in a good way, right? Like how many people do you have on your team? We have four full-time people and then like half, half a dozen or so part-time people working with us. So still, uh -huh. still quite small some consultants uh and and you've got your lab it's it's in cambridge right yep um do you have your own nmr machine or do you do you sort of share it with someone else yeah, no we share it we uh we use gerhardt's or we rent time on gerhardt's magnets over over at harvard so we're we're located in one kindle sort of right in the mix of all you know biotechopolis we're in i don't know if you've got a chance to see it but next time you're out here the the um the new launch labs, Alexandria launch lab space. So we got this sweet, sweet little space where, where the team can work. And then 
fortunately, being in, in Boston or in Cambridge, you know, there's access to all these sort of different resources. So we use the, the magnets over at Harvard, um, our consultants to like work for us and work for other companies. So we're all kind of just like all mixed together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's the the big thing on your to-do list the, over the next year that you really want to nail and like plant that yeah. stake in the ground and move forward with? Yeah, that's, we, um, we just had this big company goals day, our goals retreat setting session, and uh, it's doing these reproducibility studies. Like, so, you know, as I said, there's four full-time people, maybe half a dozen part-time people, but collectively, the whole Olaris family is probably like 25 people when you add in all the investors and this and that, and we all got together a couple weeks ago to say, what are we going to accomplish in 2019? and what we really wanted to talk about was like highlighting the reproducibility sort of of our work and the potential that it has to, you know, transform how, how diseases are diagnosed and things like that. And so we're focusing, we're doubling down on the CDK46 project where we've got samples now from MGH, from other hospitals coming in. We've got 200 that are coming in from another site that we'll be blinded to so we can just demonstrate again and again and again with the most rigorous science that this works and then show how this could save again lives improve the patient experience and the cost savings that it would have to sort of people so um there's a lot of different things that our platform could do i mean basically it's a complex mixture analysis program so like we could be doing things for pharma we could be doing all kinds of different things but we're really saying like we want to show how powerful this could be and we're going to commit to this sort of cdk46 work uh, for the next year well, and this is one of the virtues, really, of being a small, scrappy company. It forces you to focus. You can't do yeah. everything in the world, even if you had $100 million, you can't do everything that your platform could probably conceivably do. Um, yeah. but, so you're going to focus here on CDK46, the iBrands. Why is that a good, well, and Kiskali and these others, why is that a good place to start? Um, a plethora of reasons. I'll say both science and then commercial. On the science side, you know, um, one, there's a huge unmet medical need. These 20% of patients that do not initially respond further, all patients eventually acquire resistance to these drugs. And so there's actually no documented improvement in overall survival. It's just progression-free survival. So there's a real need to uncover who these drugs work for and who they do not work for. And further, they are now being evaluated, not just in the metastatic setting, but in um, the new adjuvant setting, as well as in different therapeutic areas, these drugs, because, you know, they, they have promising results, are going to be put in different areas, and a biomarker just could be sort of transformative. Um, sort of points two and three on the science side are, you know, here's a, a case where people have been looking on the genomics front, and it hasn't been um, at least that straightforward for people to sort of figure it out. And we're re- a case where we really think metabolites uh, could be the answer, specifically because CDK, cyclin-dependent kinase 4, cyclin-dependent kinase 6, which is where this, these inhibitors sort of work, it's inhibiting the, part, the G1 to S transition of the cell cycle. There's going to be a distinction in metabolism here if, for when inhibitors, for when that block is happening and when that block is not happening. So there's a whole bunch of reasons where we think our technology is sort of perfectly suited to this area. And then, again, there's that commercial need where these drugs, like, are being expanded and tested in different patient populations. And it's almost not right to have a biomarker associated with them, you know, um, and, and, and hopefully we're able to show that, that we can do this. Have you um, sought out much uh, in the way of like the big names of venture capital? And, and if so, what kind of reception have you gotten? Yeah, um, well, they haven't invested. So I mean, maybe that's, you know, uh, tell, tell something. Um, all the, the big firms have been incredibly helpful. I mean, the classic VC response is always like, great work, you know, um, you're a little early for us. Or I often get the, the the statement that, Liz, I think your technology could change the world, but I don't know how it will get me an 8x return, you know. Um, and that gets, again, to things we talked, touched on earlier is like the potential return on investment in the diagnostic or biomarker space um, is a little unclear. And so, traditional VCs. I mean, Bruce Booth writes, wrote a blog about how he hates diagnostics, you know, so a lot of VCs just like shy away from this area kind of completely. Um, and um, so as a result, you know, as we think about who we target to 
for our previous raise and for our raises going forward, you know, we want people that have expertise in this space and know the value that diagnostics can, can bring. Do you look to any other companies out there as uh, successful models or standard bearers? You know, hearing you talk, I immediately think of Genomic Health, uh, yep. which has been around for a, lo- a long time, uh, making this claim that they could reduce the unnecessary use of chemotherapy in uh, breast yep. cancer patients uh, getting maintenance treatment. And they finally came through with long-term data that say, yes, in fact, you know, you take the Oncotype DX, uh, we can tell you if you're likely to recur or not, and whether or not chemo's going to do any good. And so basically, they're making an argument that we can save money and save all kinds of unnecessary toxicities from unnecessary chemotherapy. I mean, that is that one that you look at? Yeah, so huge fans of genomic health, and we're fortunate to meet some of them out at some of the, um, the, the top folks there at JP Morgan this year. And it was just like, you know, people preaching to the choir, right? Because, like, we both definitely share the same sorts of values and sort of mission uh, of, make, of optimizing treatments for the best outcomes and also sparing people from unnecessary adverse outcomes. And uh, genomic health and foundation medicine, I would put in the same uh, bucket there, are sort of the leaders in this space. And they have paved a very difficult path of showing sort of the value um, that biomarkers have ha- can have. And I think, like, with them as, like, the leaders and then, you know, the small guys like myself and I was going to say Garden Health, but they're not small, you know, Exact Sciences, Epic Sciences. There's a whole bunch of other nanostring companies that are starting to prop up in this space where I think finally now we're getting critical mass that both, you know, non-traditional, but even now the big VC players are looking over and being like, oh, maybe this is something we want to we want to reconsider or at least watching it a little bit more um, thoughtfully. Um, because, you know, I mean, the foundation, like, look at them, you know, they're, they, they got a pretty sweet uh, return on those investments. Those are those early investors. They're, they're doing pretty well, and that's how it has to change for investors to come around and, and look at yeah. the next crop, like in Olaris. Um, yeah. Last thing I want to ask you, Liz, um, you, you know, a lot's riding on your shoulders as the, the classic scientific founder, uh, presumably, like, I mean, this is a huge part of your life. You've got a big equity stake. You want to make this thing work. Uh, but you have still these other kind of extracurriculars, let's call them. Uh, you've... You, you're involved in a nonprofit that recycles electronics. Um, and, and you also, like, I know you're mobbed up with the World Economic Forum and you were over there in Davos. Uh, you know, uh, what do these outside activities uh, provide for you in the way of, of an outlet for um, your interests? And, and do they help you in any way uh, keep doing what you do every day? Yeah, well, that's they do, and thanks, thanks for bringing them up. Um, you know, so Proactive Chispa, which means Project Spark, is the initiative. Um, again, I started it in grad school that recycles electronics and uses the, the, the money from reselling scrap metal to sort of build computer centers and orphanages throughout the world. Um, it just started based on this need that, like, you know, again, the world that we live in, you need technology to sort of get ahead. And we're so fortunate here to be surrounded by technology. Um, and if we want to sort of, you know, help others, I think committing to ways for them to kind of get get on equal playing field is something that I'm that I'm passionate about. And so Chispa um, just sort of ties into lots of different things. I like to recycle. I drive a hybrid, you know, and I think that kids need access to technology and education, you know, early on in life. Um, so that's just sort of close close to my heart. And then, you know, the work I do on the World Economic Forum, um, we certainly, again, being super honest, debate. At Alaris, you know, is this a useful thing with all the other stuff that, you know, you can imagine a CEO of a startup has to do. Um, but I think it's incredibly beneficial. Like, again, telling the case for biomarkers and why we need them on the world stage um, is an incredible opportunity that, you know, maybe it'll help Alaris, but maybe it'll help this sort of industry, you know. And again, just thinking about, like, why I'm here, it was never because I had some dream to start a biotech company. It's like, I thought I had technology that could help you know, people like my brother or, or other people in, in those areas. And so I think, you know, I feel sort of lucky to be given these opportunities and that they're not distractions. There's ways to just sort of enhance our message. And uh, it's fun because I get to sort of do it in, in my way. So I think maybe I told you this story, but just uh, um, the first time I went to Davos, I was invited to give a talk. And, you know, they sent me a bunch of like links of previous talks of how to model mine. And it was, you know, a bunch of old white guys, no offense to the old white guys, you know, talking about things that I didn't even know what they were. Um, 
And so for a while, I was really nervous and kind of imposter syndrome. I can't go. I'm going to embarrass myself. Um, but I just decided to say, you know, whatever. They invited me for a reason. So I'll, I'll, I'll go be, you know, Lizzo Day over there. And so I gave a talk that was called um, Biomarkers are the DeLorean uh, for Personalized Medicine. And I wore the Marty McFly, like, Back to the Future, like, hat, you know, um, the one that's, like, futuristic. And, like, you know, yeah, so, like, it was very, very interesting. And, you know, talked about how biomarkers from previous patients are already helping current patients. And I used, you know, the BCR able example that you gave earlier as, as, a, as a case study. And I talked about how if we, as a concerted, you know, group of, of leaders start collecting data now on our on our um current, you know, populations, that will really be transformative for, for our future healthcare systems. And uh yeah, so so it's it's been really fun. And this past Davos I um posted a session on what if we were all sequenced from birth and I wore a t shirt that said data is the new bacon and I could I could feel the forum folks being like, Oh, let her in <laughs> you know. Um but well, fun. I'm glad. It sounds like you're having fun with this stuff um, and uh, not taking yourself too seriously, which is kind of important. This is hard enough as yeah. it is uh, to, to yeah. do the things that you're trying to do. Um, and I'm glad that you actually, I, I didn't think you were old enough to get a Marty McFly reference in there, but uh, kudos to you. <laughs> um, so, um, Liz, um, I, I wish you well at Alaris. Uh, thank you for joining me today on the Long Run Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.